Hey Dragoons, this is Command Sergeant Major Michael Burke, and uh, today's episode is going to be about the Air Force. So what's it like living on an Army base? We provide precision strike capabilities in the Tactical Air Control Party. We're doing that from day one. You know more about working with the Army than I know about working with the Air Force. And so there's a certain level of skill that's required in remaining sharply focused on what needs to be done right now. Our young guys are dedicated to, you know, to the mission and making sure that uh, our brothers and sisters come back. There is nothing that is more satisfying than an A-10 coming overhead with a brrrr to save the day. All right, we're going to talk about the Air Force. And the reason being is uh, we feel that there's different leadership models. Uh, there's different philosophies and there's a lot of different techniques. So why not bring in our brethren from the Air Force and have them share some of the things that the Air Force does. When we talk about the Air Force, they play a huge role in support of Army operations. You don't see a lot of Navy soldiers around. You know, you don't see a lot of Marine soldiers around. But it's almost every installation that you go to, you're going to see Air Force airmen. And you also have a lot of joint bases as well. There's a reason for that, because there's a lot of mutual kind of support that goes in there. Also, the other reason that we're recording this uh, episode as well is because it will release on the Air Force's birthday, which is September 18th, and it was founded in 1947. And just to add, you know, in the in the kind of uh, maybe brothers from a different mother, the Air Force actually used to be the Army Air Corps in 1947. And then, you know, we were like, listen, this isn't working for us. It's not you, it's me, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, we kind of kicked you out. And you're like, hey, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Children of an amicable divorce. Uh, amicable divorce yeah, all right. No, I'm just messing with you. But, you know, Master Art, listen to you talk. Uh, you, you were, you were kind of given the, the, the history behind it. But I think the other reason was is that it needed to be its own service, you know, because of what was going into World War II and the production that was going into World War II. I don't think it, was, it wasn't feasible anymore to kind of, you know, have that kind of our subordinate command within the Army. I think it needed to kind of be its own thing that could stand alone if needed, especially with the operations that were going on. So anyway, I'm super excited about this Air Force. This is the first time we've kind of crossed the line outside the Army. Um, you know, I think we've had one civilian in a podcast. That's about it. Bringing in our Air Force, you know, and especially uh, bringing in, you know, the command team from uh, Second Air Support Operations um, that's right down the road, uh, Rose Barracks. We do a lot of different things together. When we drive long hauls, there's going to be an Air Force Humvee with a... Uh, all blinged out in the back has like its own gym and like collapsible like you know kitchen and everything you else. know how we do it yeah yeah right <laughs> um but you know you guys are going to be in support and then all, in a lot of ways especially you know when we talk about operations we're going to be doing quite frankly you will be taking actions before we will even be taking action without further ado please introduce yourself all right. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Justin Banez. I'm the commander of the second air support operations squadron. And it's an absolute pleasure to uh, to join you all here. And uh, uh, Sergeant Major said we are partners in crime and uh, we live and breathe uh, with you guys. And so we're happy to be here. All right. Great. And uh, I'm Master Matt McKeegan. I'm the operations superintendent of the 2A SAS. All right. You have a, you have a voice made for radio as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe I can get into baseball announcing when I'm done. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is your actual unit's mission here? Glad you asked that uh, because I, I'm sure there's plenty of soldiers uh, here specifically on, on Vilsec and, and over in Grafenvere see these Air Force guys walking around with black berets. And for us specifically, Sergeant Major, we are the tactical air control party. I know we got this patch on our shoulder, but what we provide to our Army partners and specifically with 2CR and 
uh, elements of the 173rd is we provide precision strike capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I know that's not really a doctrinal term, but what the Air Force and what the Joint Force is recognizing is that, you know, not only do kinetic effects, mm-hmm. right, close air support uh, in support of our, our brothers on the ground, but we can also bring in a lot of other joint fires. So our role at really is to be able to integrate and employ to support any ground commander and also to support Air Force objectives, like you said, as well, like as we're shaping the battlefield for all of our partners. Anything you want to add to that, Master? Yeah, the history really goes back to the beginning, right? The genesis okay. of the United States Air Force, part of the consternation with the split was learned lessons of World War II, right. you know, tank columns coming out of the Normandy beachheads with persistent P-47 Thunderbolt and P-51 Mustang air support, right? That that, w- that was understood by the pre-joint joint force to be a, a huge difference maker, right? Yep. Enabling maneuver. And so uh, the Army's big concern when we had the split in 47 was how we were going to capitalize on those lessons learned and carry it into the future. And so Tactical Air Control Party, while we've got a very long history that uh, wound its way through the Korean conflict and then really started to come into its own in the Vietnam War, is a direct growth right out of that and the the lessons learned in uh, combined arms warfare in this AO, right, inside of Europe in World War II. Okay, so let me tell a story real quick, okay, and maybe kind of capture what you guys were just talking about. 2008, 9-ish, so we land Mm -hmm. on helicopters about 5K away. We're walking up, somehow, still not quite sure, but what was unobserved was actually a Kurdish armored brigade that was in support behind this hill. Anyway, we get in a huge firefight with them. Okay. Now, granted, this is a, you know, this is a friendly, Mm -hmm. you know, element, but I remember looking at my JTAC that was with me at the time, a guy named Brandon Temple. Hey, we've got a, we've got a- I know BT real well. (laughs) I've known Brandon (laughs) Temple for a very long time. We're trying to figure out you know, how we're going to get this to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, we did all the, you know, kind of de-escalation things trying to signal, hey, we are friendly, a friendly force. Uh, we're hiding in this, like, I say berm, what I mean is like a three-inch ditch. It's me, Brandon Temple, and this XO. And I mean, we are getting RPG fire, PKM fire. They are starting to roll around tanks uh, and they're starting to engage us. And if you've ever been shot by a tank, it sounds like a freight train coming over your head. We couldn't figure out exactly what to do, um, how to signal to them that we were an American force, you know, because the lasers weren't working, all the other, you know, flares and everything else were not helping. Somebody said, hey, low fly F-16 right overhead. And that's exactly what we did. And what happened was when they flew the F-16 right overhead, just low level, it also, because of all the RPG fire and all the fire happening, it launched the flares as well. And very quickly, it kind of de-escalated in the situation. And this F-16 was actually not flying in support of our mission. Mm -hmm. But Brandon doing what he was doing at the time, bring him in, bring him onto a freak that, uh, you know, whatever the freak was at the time, and uh, kind of direct direct him in which way to fly and stuff. But, you know, the point being is, is that, I've worked very closely with the Air Force, uh, you know, through the JTACs. And uh, I will tell you when everything that we have at our disposal is just not getting the job done, there is nothing better. There is nothing that is more satisfying than an A-10 coming overhead with a brrrr to save the day and to help you be able to gain that fire superiority with the enemy and move forward and conquer great things. Just wanted to tell a story, but that's exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about that joint piece um, that we wouldn't be able to do that. Now, the Army has done some programs where they, you know, send Army Army FOs through the JTAC program. However, it, it'll never be enough 
we always have to have kind of that Air Force support, even in special operations. And the expertise, it's never going to be on the same level. Yeah, I really like the way you, you explained the story. To be honest, I was getting excited about it, you know, just yeah, right? visualizing uh, exactly what you're talking there. about. Right? I, was I, was, I was there. <laughs> but you hit it on the head. That last piece there, Sergeant Major, was the integration part that comes into it. I know we throw that term around so often, yeah. but literally it means doing what we're doing right now, right? We're yeah. working with each other. You establish a relationship where you can trust each other to do what needs to be done, right? Yeah. And in that case, right, like you weren't trying to smoke the Kurdish, you know, you were trying to get them to stop doing what they're exactly. doing, right? And yep. uh, the decision that was made at that point in time was still to be able to use air assets to provide an effect, right? And it, it's surprising what, if it was the enemy, right, doing the same thing probably would have sent them on their heels, right? And then yep. allow you to consolidate and do what you needed to do. You know, so. especially when you talk in those countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, and that one, that one was in Iraq, obviously, yeah, yeah. but uh, they know what that meant. <laughs> you know, they know what that meant, you know, and uh, they knew that they were no match to that, you know, so they quickly, you know, just as you said, you know, turn tail and run. So anyway, you know, the NCOs in the Air Force and the, the airmen in the Air Force, what do they do? What does a day look like? I need to go back to your point when you were talking about the network, right? The TAC, yeah. the TAC P and the capabilities that they're bringing. We're officer light across the across the career field. Okay. And I, I think this plays directly into the expectations that we set for our airmen and our, our non-commissioned officers. If we're talking about uh, in the operational environment or back in a garrison environment, they're leading their teams, right? They're responsible mm -hmm. for training the guys on their competency with their J-metal tasks. They're operating the simulator a lot, controlling live cast assets when we've got the opportunity to, to train with those. Guys are churning out maintenance of equipment, you know, all that kind of thing. Just NCO-type tasks. Where I see a difference is that you had mentioned it at one point, right? Like uh, you had a non-com working with you when you were with the regiment, and he's doing a job that at a company level, majority of the army is typically filled by an 03, by a captain, right? Right, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, okay. Yep, so, absolutely, the FSO for a company. Correct, yep. okay. correct. And then while he's, got, while he's got a team of 13 foxes with him, like there's a certain level of competence, right? But then also the knowledge that you're one deep that changes the way that you've got to look at things okay. uh, from their perspective. I like to uh, remember the, the UPS commercial, you know, what can Brown do for you, right? So from the Air Force perspective, TACP, what can Blue do for you in this particular circumstance? Is that your official model? It's not our official model. <laughs> Okay, okay. Just make sure. it's, it's like 17th on the list, but, uh, <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, tactical problem solving. Mm -hmm. And so internal to our squadron environment, whether we're talking about it in garrison or not, trying to push the envelope of their ability to solve problems, deliver solutions. We like to say that on the battlefield, you request effects. You don't necessarily lay out like ground commander, right? Like uh, he's requesting an effect on the battlefield. How that gets solved is okay. agnostic to whether it's an A-10 an F-15, yeah, B-52, right, it doesn't, about, yeah. it doesn't matter. And so there's a certain level of skill that's required in remaining sharply focused on what needs to be done right now. Like, what is the end state? And I think that ties really neatly to the uh, the Army Concept of Mission Command, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, it's not that different at all. It's just very much in our face, right? Like, the delivering an effect on the battlefield in the combat environment is the whole reason why he's there. And then leveraging the network, because we're at all echelon. And that's, that's really the difference between uh, somebody of another MOS that is carrying a JTAC qualification versus the tactical air control party purpose built to form this web across the battlefield where we're all interacting laterally, we're all interacting vertically, right? And extending uh, extending eyes, uh, control capability, all of that, you know, at, at Echelon. I, I had guys sitting in two-man OPs out at the uh, reconnaissance screen, mm -hmm. or we had guys at the main CP, you know, at the brigade, uh, yeah. coordinating other things. And all of those guys are a part of the TACP, and all of them are enabling each other to accomplish their missions. And so if we're talking about what do they do, what do we do on a, on a routine basis, it's making young airmen and then young NCOs 
accountable for effects. We've used mission type orders right inside the organization. I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do. I'm going to tell you what needs to be done, what timeline it needs to be done on, and what the commander's intent. What skills do I want you to have generated by the end of this? And then that allows us to capitalize on the creativity of, of the younger dudes. But it also puts them in an environment where they can't turn around and ask somebody else what next, right? Gotcha. I, think, I think that's the biggest piece. Somebody is going to be turning to them and asking, what next? And in order for them to be able to provide what the Joint Force needs at that time, as the subject matter expert, as the Air Force representative there, he's the one that's going to be asked the question, what next? I've made it a habit of when I'm in, engaging with my younger dudes, right? They, they, they come and ask, you know, hey, I got this problem. How do I solve it? Uh, I've seen a lot of benefit to be gained in talking them through their own solution to that problem rather than delivering them a set of steps to follow to get it done. There are items that require steps. Following PMCS procedures on a tactical vehicle, right? Those are very much checklist driven type things. But when it comes to being effective in their role, and I don't think this is probably that much dissimilar from a squad leader's responsibility in employing a squad, but there's still an application of those skills to the tactical problem, right? There's a customizing that to the to the tactical problem. That is the thing that I know that Colonel Banya is our director of operations, you know, myself, we, we're talking about all the time is how do we uh, make that such a part of everyday occurrence that folks are just expected to deliver results, that we're practicing those skills that are going to be absolutely crucial in the combat environment here in the garrison. There's really not much difference between what we're talking about no. here. You know, it's just a, it's a different skill set, different way of accomplishing very similar yep. things. You know, Army, you know, most of the time is going to be the direct fire systems. Mm -hmm. You know, on a basic live fire between the two teams that he's trying to control, maybe he has, you know, indirect fires that he's also trying to control as far as the mortar positions and then also, you know, the D or the J uh, as far as our strikers go. That can get very complex, mm -hmm. you know, but he's got to go through, like you talked about, steps. But then also the steps just started to become like a battle drill, yeah. you know, where they execute them very, very quickly. But, you know, kind of coming back to what you were talking about, at the end of the day, the troop commander, you know, has 9 to 12 squad leaders at his disposable. Or, you know, and maybe disposal is the wrong word, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, the tools he's been given. Yeah, he's yeah. the, you know, the, the, the troop commander or, you know, the brigade commander actually might only have one TACP. When you talk about the planning kind of phase for the Air Force, they need to provide options. You know, during the, what are you trying to do? Here's the options that are available. Here's what I recommend based off my expertise. You know, you highlighted a very, very good thing. You know, normally the FSO is, uh, you know, going to be a lieutenant. Mm -hmm. um, in some organizations like Ranger Regiment, they're a captain by the time they're an FSO. That airman or that NOMCOM, as you said, he is the advisor to the troop commander, mm -hmm. or he might be to the battalion or the brigade commander, the rank is a, a lot different. So the level of expertise and what he needs to provide, you have to have subject matter experts, but then also you have to have people that can communicate the point that they're trying to get across and how their their resources and the assets that they have available could be used to meet the commander's intent. Mm -hmm. You know, an army saying, you know, the commander's mm -hmm. intent, well, you have commander's it's intent. It's ours too. Yeah. <laughs> the point I was trying to make is, is, you know, you talked about that can that can work together, that can work concurrently. Um, you know, and it can be used to solve a common problem. But if that TACP or that NOMCOM is not able to communicate at those echelons um, and do so effectively, um, then it can also be the opposite. Yeah. And it can actually be at a detriment. And what it really actually will result in is a loss of an asset that's maybe misused or not utilized at all when we talk from a, you know, a fire's platform, mm -hmm. which can result in not gaining fire superiority, right. not neutralizing it or destroying some kind of enemy and result in American soldiers dying. It's two types of trust, right? Yeah. Trust that you're competent yeah. in the employment of your weapon systems. Right. Which is, you know, that's that's a that's a common 
yeah. thing throughout the military and then trust in the individual, right? And the mm -hmm. competence of their ability to work through problems, communicate clearly, concisely, and actually get the results. Because communication is absolutely critical. In fact, if, if uh, I'm I'm not an original tech P, I served uh, for a number of years as security forces okay. in the Air Force, so our equivalent of the military police, and then retrained over here. And, and something as simple as your ability to communicate clearly in verbal English is part of the screeners, right, in order to join the tactical air control party. So we acknowledge that. And, and if you ever have the opportunity to hear um, someone trying to provide targeting information to an aircraft, right? Especially if we're doing a bomb on target delivery. I liken it to the spotter talking a sniper right. onto a target, yeah. right? Oh, and now, now separate those guys, put one at, you know, 15,000 feet, <laughs> mm -hmm. going, yeah. going fast as all hell, yeah. and, uh, and, and link them through a radio, and then give the dude in the aircraft a soda straw to look through at the ground, and now try to talk your sniper onto the target. Communication is absolutely crucial in understanding the tactical situation, communicating with the partner, right? Whether that's the, the, the U.S. Army partner or whether that we're communicating with the supporting uh, Air Force asset and, and just understanding the need, right? Communicating uh, internal to the commander's intent on, on how we're going to crack this nut. You know, it's, it's, it's the biggest piece. No, I think that's great. There's a lot of things that I think any Army NCO or Army soldier can kind of pull away from, you know, the things that you're talking about that is complex as your operations might be, you know, in that scenario that you just painted with a pilot that's going, you know, Mach 1, the TACP that's on the ground trying to dial him in on target. At the end of the day, if you go back to originally what you were talking about, it's because you're training on the fundamental things. Mm -hmm. Well, first, his radio has to work. Mm -hmm. Second, it has to be on the right freak. Mm -hmm. You know, and third, you know, and you know, you just go, but it's it's the training of the fundamentals to solve these complex problems, which is what we constantly talk about in the Army and especially in 2CR is, okay, hey, you want to do all these other things. First, let's talk about the fundamentals. Okay, hey, what can you do with your individual weapon system? You and, and you look at any high-performing organization, mm -hmm. you know, regiment, you know, is an example. My last deployment, we were supporting uh, the folks uh, working in Syria. Okay. And, and, and watching any of those organizations function and at the end of the day, they're doing the exact same thing that every other formation in the United States Department of Defense is doing. They're just doing it to standard and they're executing at a very yeah. high level of proficiency. It's not new, right? No, it's, it's just a, a high level of technical competence and then a, then a commitment to your craft, right? Yep. That is absolutely, absolutely required to achieve that. And it's from that, that the trust flows from commanders to subordinates, from sub lateral, from peers to peers, from leaders to their soldiers, from you know NCOs to their airmen, right? It all comes from that, just executing every little piece, the small stuff, executing it well. You know, how do organizations become excellent? Really what it, what the conversation ended up kind of coming down to is, is, is it born or is it bred? Treating the army like a profession, always striving for excellence, you know, always being motivated and, you know, having that desire. And the truth is, is that Yes, there's people that are born with it, but more than likely it's bred. And it's actually adopting a thought process. And coming to your point, talking about range regiment, you know, I spent 16 years in range regiment, so I heard it all the dang time. Well, you guys get all the money in the world. You get the best training, you get the best deployments, you get the best, you get all this and this and this and this. Yes, that enhances, okay, just like you guys wearing cry uniforms. Hashtag extremely jealous but anyway because it's super comfortable but anyway yeah yeah yeah, yeah. sticking his hands in his pockets but anyway the point being is is uh yes it does help you you know that equipment helps you do your job better but that's not what makes you excellent in range regiment they master the fundamentals and they train on them until they can't get them wrong. Mm -hmm. And they are held accountable. And leaders, the young sergeants and staff sergeants in that organization, if they don't have the ability to be the trainers or train the trainers and do it right and do it to perfection and get their formation able to accomplish that, then 
it's time for you to leave the organization mm-hmm. because you have to perform at that standard. But to be able to do the missions, you know, that you're talking about, they need to have that kind of mentality and they need to be able to do that stuff. You know, you're exactly right. At the end of the day, it always comes back to those core fundamental tasks. And you first, you have to understand those. And that's a big thing that we're doing in 2CR. And it sounds exactly what you were talking about, Matt Sarn, is you two defining what is the standards, what are the tasks that we need to accomplish, and then what's a training program to make sure that we do that. So one thing that you did talk about, uh, kind of shifting gears on here, here a little bit, because we get in training and it'll be uh, it'll be 2300 before, uh, before we <laughs> stop. So we talked about the officers in the Air Force and how they, you're very light. Is that by design? You know, Sergeant McKeegan talked earlier about uh, our genesis as a community back all the way back to 1947. In the early days, right, there was a, uh, there was a belief that really only those who were employing the weapon system, i.e. a pilot, had the the knowledge and wherewithal, situational awareness to be able to do that job effectively. Time has passed, and I think, again, you know, we're just seeing the fact that we have enlisted joint terminal attack controllers proving that premise wrong. Our community has kind of grown out of that. So in the past, we used to have either a pilot or, you know, someone who'd wear a flight suit come out for a short period of time to provide support to attack P. Uh, and to be honest, you know, you said 16 years in the Ranger Regiment. That's probably a lot of what you had, had seen were, right. were guys that were coming out of an F-16, A-10, whatever yeah, the case yeah. may be. The ALOs, yep. And, and right, exactly. And so even there's been a marked change with, with the term air liaison officer. So 2009, the Air Force had been mulling this stuff over for a long time, right? And they finally made the decision that we need to commit to this mission set. We need to commit to our joint service partners with a officer career field that understands that mission set. Uh, and probably more importantly, takes care of the airmen, right, and can have a seat at the table, right, that can then advocate and understand all the problems. You know, too often we're off on on an Army post and all that, and while we've got good relationships with our partners, we were often forgotten by the Air Force. Right. right. Not by any design. It's just the kind of the way it worked out. Our career field, even though we're all trained as JTACs, you know, and we follow kind of a standard growth pyramid sort of thing, we are here to, to no kidding, be the officer leadership of, of the community. And it's paid dividends even in a short period of time. So similar to Sergeant McKeegan, you know, I started off in a different career field and got to be at the genesis of this one. Right. And our, okay. my focus, my laser focus has always been about how do we take care of the TACP community, advance Air Force special warfare capabilities, and how to become better integrators with all our partners. And so every time I show up, that's that's what I'm here to do. You've got lieutenants who are growing up in, in that environment, right? They're not coming in as a borrowed asset. They are growing up, living and breathing with their airmen, understanding all the complexities and problems, trying to solve the same tactical problems that their army counterparts are doing. Later on down the line, you know, when they're lieutenant colonel and, the sergeant, and, and they've got the sergeant major or, you know, our equivalent, they've been through those life experiences together, right? And they know how to how to get after it. So they're not repeating the same mistakes. Well, that's interesting. I, actually, I didn't know that. It was a way to, to, to differentiate the fact that we're not just a liaison, right? It's more yeah. than that. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Yeah, you're so welcome. That, yeah. It's good education. Mm-hmm. Going back, talking about NCOs, Army NCOs, the professional military model program looks like uh, before you're promoted to the rank of sergeant, okay, so E5, you know, you got to go to BLC, basic leader course. Before staff sergeant, E6, ALC, advanced leader course. Uh, Sergeant first class is senior leaders course. First sergeant, master sergeant, that's MLC. And then uh, the United States Sergeant Major Academy is for sergeant majors. So that's kind of what, you know, a quick snapshot of what the Army model kind of looks like. You know, how does the Air Force's model kind of look for your non-coms? So the Air Force model has similarities, right? Okay. Uh, 
with a couple of notable gaps. Airman Leadership School is completed prior to promotion to E5. The Air Force, of course, because we skip one, is Staff Sergeant. So the Senior Airman to Staff Sergeant jump, which would be equivalent to the Specialist uh, Army uh, Sergeant E5. And then as an E6, you'll attend uh, Non-Commissions Officers Academy. Because those are total force PME courses, right. uh, they are not specialized in any way, shape, or form to our specialty code, uh, the AFSC, uh, okay. Air Force Specialty Code, or our, our equivalent of the MOS. They're not specialized at all. You have to look at those in parallel to uh, what we call our skill level upgrades, which uh, have a formal training component to them. So uh, when we're awarded our basic uh, skill level, that is a three level, then we jump to a five level. Uh, we are currently in the process of, an, uh, of inaugurating a uh, formal training unit that will take you through that entire training pipeline. You'll look at a guy essentially coming out of basic training and then going into somewhere between 12, 15 months of, uh, of a training pipeline. And that will upgrade you to the three, which is the apprentice level, and then the, uh, the five, which is the journeyman level. At the E6, after NCOA, or in, in close proximity to, you'll receive your seven level upgrade. And that is another technical upgrade piece. So they're decoupled, I guess, in, in a way. So they're not branch specific. You'll do NCOA. NCOA is predominantly focused on, on uh, resource management, discipline, Air Force policy. Each of the Air Force specialty codes will complete their skill specific training through the seven level course. So that's, I think, the most fundamental difference between the way that you see PME okay. developed in the Air Force versus in the Army. They make a distinction between military training in the Air Force and military education. Military education is very oh, much okay, the, gotcha. the total force. Mm -hmm. And then military training is AFSC or especially uh, specific. And, and so those two are separate from each other. I had the pleasure of attending the Battlestaff Non-Commissions Officers course when I was assigned to Fort Benning through USASMA. And uh, one of the things I noticed, for instance, I'm in the room with a whole bunch of other Army E7s, and they're just being exposed to the military decision-making process for the first time. In the Tactical Air Control Party, we're doing that from day one. Our guys are accustomed to staff processes, even if they're not there as the primary integrator. Uh, they're accustomed to the staff processes, and they're being educated on how that works, how orders development happens, how annexes work together, how the coordinating instructions are developed, and there's inputs to that. There's Tactical Air Control Party Air Force inputs to each one of those products. So they're exposed to the military decision-making process at a much earlier time. So we arrive at some of the same competencies, but just on a different glide slope yeah. and through two different methodologies. The technical training aspect in the Air Force is typically separate from uh, what they consider to be proficient military education. Huh. That's actually, that's pretty neat. Sir, I do have one question. I yeah, noticed that you have a, you know, the Army parachutist badge. Jump master, mm -hmm. and that looks like a cab underneath. That's correct. Were yeah. you in the army? No. Oh, um, okay. So th th that's the nice thing about the nature of what we do, sergeant major. So uh, I've attended, uh, you know, army schools. Um, okay. uh, so I, you know, I've, a lot of us have gone to airborne school, uh, became a jump master, and then again in in the performance of service with our joint partners awarded the cab. Okay. Um, and so you'll see that on a lot of our uh, tactical air control parties. So uh, he didn't have it on on this particular uniform because we have the option, but you know he's pathfinder qualified. Okay. Um, and so. So uh, our uniform regulations or Air Force instructions authorize the wear of uh, awarded sister service badges and tabs. You've probably seen, again, uh, some TACPs out there that have gone through Ranger School. Absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, we also used to wear our um, CIB for, you know, units that we supported and all that. So I keep those in my pockets. But right now we're repping the Air Force. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. So, because, it, you know, it, it, it means a lot to us in particular, right, because of, of, of the folks that we uh, that we go to combat with. Does anybody in the 2nd ASOS have a, the Ranger tab? Right now, I don't don't have any no, tabbed no, uh, individuals. Yeah. I have one inbound. Yeah, yeah, please let me know because okay. I want to bring 
use him. Bunkley. Right? Bunkley's our guy coming mm-hmm. in. So you, right. you more than have, you can I wanna, have I want to use him to talk crap about the Army guys that are not going through the Army school. Yeah. Okay. But, okay. We, we've had tactical air control party in the last two best ranger competitions. I did see that. That's awesome. Well, we value it for the same reason that the Army does. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. It, it's, it's a leadership academy. And, and, yeah. and considering that we operate with our feet firmly planted in the ground domain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Even as we bridge that gap between the air and the ground domain, a lot of what the ground component values, decision-making, combat leadership, being able to suck it up, you yeah. know, like we value that too in a way that's not necessarily translates directly onto the flight line back at the airbase. Yeah. And here's why it takes them to walk. You know, it takes them this long to walk 40 miles. Now I understand why. I just want all the dragoons out there that are listening that we have an Air Force master sergeant talking about how the importance of ranger school. Okay. You didn't hear it from me. I don't ever talk about it. <laughs> But you heard it from him. <laughs> so you need to go to range school. Okay. You know, you guys, you know more about working with the Army than I know about working with the Air Force. So what do you think some of the biggest difference between Army leadership models and Air Force leadership models? One thing I know that the Air Force drills down in, at least in our officer training, they always talk about flexibility, right? And not to say that the other services aren't flexible. I think because of the nature of the way air power can be sent to go do a, a, a lot of different types of things, right? It's never okay. tied to any one given thing, right? It's, it's, it tends to be but very, it can change. In it can flight. change right? in flight. In yeah, flight, yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very, very good usage there. Yeah. So I think in many ways we're, we're we're bred to kind of think that way, and the way we empower airmen just probably looks a little different, right? We're going to expose them to at least in our community, we're going to expose them to environments that's going to put a lot of responsibility on their backs, regardless of what's sitting on their chest. I can't expect you to grow unless I put you in uncomfortable situations, right, right. and allow you to potentially fail or succeed. And you talked about accountability earlier. I think that's the part that kind of keeps it all. What I do appreciate about kind of observing army leadership is you guys think through very deliberately. Let's put it this way. You guys have a checklist, you have a, a regulation or whatever that, that helps with that accountability piece. And if a leader, right, just pays attention to that and executes that stuff, they're going to get their team through. And so I've, I've, Growing up, right, I used to carry, and this is this is kind of a weird admission, but I used to carry a copy of old seven eight, right, because yeah, I embraced I embraced what was was being said there, right, and and I, and it's, that's held true to this day. Uh, again, it's just really the way we execute. Uh, we know that we can get tasked to do a bunch of different types of things, right, but your process tends to be a lot more deliberate, and I think we could learn a lot from that too if we stayed tied in with it. But yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, there's a lot of different ways to to do the leadership thing to get to the, the same end state, but I, I think it's just by nature of the way. We we're, we're kind of broken out. A hybrid or a balanced approach, right? We all know our pitfalls. The flexible approach, our pitfall is that we shoot from the hip, right? You, you, ne- you neglect to plan and then obviously you don't, you're, you're left holding the bag when, you know, the, the thing that I whipped together five minutes before execution falls apart. Conversely, right? We've planned into so much depth that we're now unable to re- to we're react to the reality, rigid, yeah. right? Like I, I, the, the battle doesn't develop the way that I expected to develop, but I cannot see anything beyond the order that I issued. To me, the thing that I latched onto, command and control got revised to the mission command, right? And it was defined. It was about enabling discipline initiative. And the mm-hmm. truth of the matter was that to me is that middle of the road between the two extremes. And it's permitting flexibility, right? on For subordinate guys to maneuver, to achieve the intent at the end of the day, while also providing a framework to make sure that we're there and the team is synchronized in order right. to support. For us, I think that one of the major issues, the communication has to be two ways. 
in the Air Force leadership model, communication is is probably more two-way than what you would expect to see. If you were to step into any of our sync meetings, whether we're talking about training planning meeting or having a conversation, I observed uh, a synchronization meeting, uh, net call that was made last week, right? And there was about as much data coming down from the higher echelons as was coming up from the lower echelons. Okay. And it was very much balanced, right? Because there's a sh the goal is shared understanding. Uh, there's a lot more of two-way comms. That gets interpreted very much as an informal, uh, an informality uh, that sometimes rubs people the wrong way, right? Yeah. If, if they're observing from the outside. But I would argue is absolutely crucial in creating an environment where that may be a dumb question right now, but tomorrow it might not be. So I want you asking it so that we can address it on the table. There's a time when it's like, all right, this is the plan. It's we imperfect. Yeah. We're executing. Okay, Roger. Maintaining some flexibility in, in the middle, I think it involves a little bit more of collaboration. Well, and I will say that I've, I've watched the Army change, you know, over 22 years, mm -hmm. um, where I think it was a lot more rigid, mm -hmm. more of, you know, NCOs, officers, you know, at the middle level saying do, and everybody else just blindly saying Roger, and then, you know, going in and executing. And I think, you know, as things have changed over time, missions have changed, we've found ourselves now across the Army that there's a lot more collaboration. I'd like to add on to that one, Sergeant Major, because I, I've, I've noticed it too, again, just as a, as a, as a partner, right? Like I've, I have felt that the Army has has made a concerted effort with that. And, and I've seen that both in, uh, especially for officers, right? Like older officers getting away, shutting up every now and then to listen to, uh, to yeah. what, what their soldiers have to say, right? Or let them solve the problem, right? And that's fine. You know, you give some intent and all that, but you'd be very surprised what, what your guys have come up with. You know, that, that's definitely the environment that I think that we try to foster where we're at. And, and I think it just applies across all formations because to be honest, right? The adversary is throwing all sorts of crazy stuff at us. And if we get entrenched in the old ways of doing things, well, they get the upper hand. So our, our young guys are, are looking at the world differently. They, they see targets of opportunity. I, I think it's yeah, it's smart for us to embrace that. Yeah. With this podcast, we constantly are trying to bring down young soldiers in to talk about the things that we're discussing. At the end of the day, that's where most people probably want to hear from anyway. You know? Agreed. Yeah. So what's it like living on an Army base? My immediate prior duty station was Osan Air Base in uh, in Korea. Okay. Uh, I got to go and do my... Uh, my purgatory tour on staff, uh, and <laughs> and uh, that immediately followed Fort Benning. Uh, most of my neighbors were, you know, either in regiment or with Third Brigade, Three ID, or yeah, yeah. working for the MCO. And I remember coming up on the end of the tour there at Osan, and wife's like, uh, are, "Are we getting back to an army installation yet?" It's what I've come to expect. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> oh, to be completely honest, uh, I'll say this: we probably understand each other a little bit better mm -hmm. than the average airman understands where I'm coming from. Because of the fact that we've, we've shared the same foxholes, we've, we've slept in the same rain, yeah. you know, like we've got the same set of stories because we're all there, you know, and, that, and that's not necessarily the same, uh, same on an Air Force installation. I have no heartburn whatsoever uh, okay. being assigned to an Army installation. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's it's probably harder for, um, you know, if you were to ask someone from maybe our support staff, uh, you know, that it's not... A, an actual, you know, TAC P, they might have a different perception because this yeah. might be their first, uh, you know, exposure to it. But, yeah. but yeah, I guess I'm the same way because I've had, I've had the pluses and minuses of All both right. sides. So like last assignment was Joint Base Lewis McCord. I spent time at Fort Bragg and I had no consternations there, you know, and, and yeah. you know how Bragg can be. So there, there's pluses and minuses to both. That's for sure. And, you know, our, again, watching the army invest more into, you know, the, the stuff that's available to soldiers and families, more importantly, because yeah. they're the ones that are bearing, you know, the bulk of the load. How do, uh, how do Dragoons engage with a second ASOS if they, if they want to? We've had great success working with JFOs, integrating them into, uh, in, 
into any of the training events that we have that benefits them, that benefits us. That's phenomenal. Working with the Shadow Platoon is something that we've worked with in the past as well. The real touch points are, so myself and, and, and Major Osland were the, uh, the ops team. We're always trying to synchronize our training events with any partners that we've got the opportunity to expand our skills, expand the partner's skills. That's probably the easiest way to get involved. Uh, but if you run into one of our airmen in the food court or anything like that, just ask them. Just ask them what's going on. Ask them what they do for a living. And they'll be more than happy to tell you all sorts of lies about uh, how amazing they are. <laughs> uh, but but th th there'll be a significant amount of truth in there, too. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, we're, we're, we're here. We work... Um, we work dry cast training right over top of Rose Barracks mm, on a routine yeah. basis. You'll hear the engine and you'll see a guy flying circles in the skies and, and somewhere you're going to find one of us. All right. Before we kind of close up here, best army story. We were in Afghanistan. We were responsible for setting an outer cordon uh, for a soft knock on this town up in the middle of who knows where. Right. We're planning an, an air assault infill with a field artillery battalion that has been... Uh, gone over to doing infantry stuff. Uh, this is Strike Brigade 101 with some elements of the 4th ID attached to us, Raider Brigade. I can't remember how all that worked out. But anyways, we were about uh, two companies strong, uh, about four Chinooks going into this area. It was planned. It was set. Everything was ready to go. Incidentally, uh, the folks that do intel collection and, and interpretation of, of predominantly or imagery intelligence, uh, they hit us up and said, hey, we've got, uh, we're going to be flying in your area. You have any incidental collection that you're interested in? Ask for some low angle stuff so that we can get some vertical relief breakout because all we had was satellite imagery. And it turns out that our, our planned HLZs was in the middle of an Afghan uh, graveyard. And in oh, Afghan yeah. graveyards have all those those poles, right, with the little prayer flags and everything hanging on them. So we scrapped that. We rolled on. Uh, the mission ends up going off pretty well until it got dark. We arrive with Chuck 1. We arrive with Chuck 2. We arrive with Chuck 3. We've got our corners of the, of the PZ. And uh, where's Chuck 4? Where's Chuck 4? Where's Chuck 4? Where's Chuck 4? We're in radio contact the entire time. We have no idea where they are. Well, they took a hard left turn at some point and were wandering their way up through the terrain to the, oh, to the top of the mountain. Fortunately, they had nods and the Reaper had a infrared pointer. And so what we ended up doing is we ended up having him turn it on to pulse and we blinked point man all the way down onto the PZ with that, uh, with that IR beam. They arrived, I think, two minutes before the CH-47s hit the PZ ready for us to pull out. But hey, it worked. Yeah. Joint force. Yeah, joint force. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sir, you got a story? A lot of good stuff that's occurred over the years, I guess, working with the Army. Because, I mean, I mean, shoot, I even went to Army Command and General Staff College, right? So oh, I think yeah. I've got more Army on me than uh, than Air Force sometimes. But I, I just look back on, on all of those good moments, right, where the team came together, especially in a combat environment, and bringing back our soldiers, right? And I think that's the, the, the probably the most important part. And that's what resonates with me. And so I, I don't want to go into, you know, deep stuff and all that, because that's just kind of what pops up. But knowing that that our young guys are dedicated to, you know, to the mission and making sure that uh, our brothers and sisters come back. Sorry, not a real story, but. Yeah. No, I appreciate mm -hmm. that, sir. Uh, it was awesome. Thanks for having, having us. You, guys. Yeah. you know, it was a, it's important for people to understand, you know, different leadership models and, you know, just kind of the difference between services. But I think probably also we kind of dispelled some myths, you know, <laughs> yeah. that people might kind of think, uh, you know, exist between the Air Force and the Army. So, you know. So kind of, you know, in closing, as we as we wrap up here, you know, in the podcast, we want to try to kind of, you know, continuously have a dialogue. Uh, we want to have diversity of, you know, people that come on and they talk about different things. And, you know, the Air Force coming on, what a way to kind of show, you know, the jointness of our two organizations, of the Air Force and the Army, because, and it comes back to exactly what you were saying there, sir. At the end of the day, we only have each other. It's really not going to matter at the end of the day if you're Air Force, if you're Army. Uh, we are going to fight and we are going to win because we're Americans. 
This is Dragoon7 signing off. We want to keep these going, but we want to make sure that they're engaging. If you have any ideas of anything that you would like to have us cover, please let us know, contact the PAO, and make your suggestion. Also, if you would like to be on a podcast, again, contact the PAO, because we want to bring soldiers in across the entire regiment and have them contribute to this.